Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. I want to tell you about Doing Justice, a new podcast from Cafe Studios. It's about a prosecutor's role in our justice system and is hosted by former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. Wait, I know him. The show asks if we should allow an elected official to run for re-election while under investigation. It follows a sex worker who was robbed and gets her day in court. Preet explores the key elements of cases from the unique perspective of the prosecutors grappling with urgent moral and legal questions. Subscribe to Doing Justice wherever you're listening now. This is Diana from Arlington, Virginia. I support this show and get exclusive podcasts at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, TV, and this week, to solve crime in a Latino community that no longer trusted them, Houston police created an experimental unit to overcome that problem. We'll talk about the podcast Chicano Squad from Vox. Then, in the 1980s, a cheap form of rock cocaine changed the nature of addiction and racial justice in America. But how much of our perception of the epidemic was myth? We'll review Netflix's Crack, Cocaine, Corruption, and Conspiracy. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist and outstanding podcast guest host, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. How's your shits? Oh, so much better. So, so much better. better. They're controllable. Yes. And, and I, you can time them. We'll talk about that in a second, okay? okay. <laughs> also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. Sorry. I'm distracted by Toby, who's like trying to be silly tonight. Yeah. <laughs> He's got a little alien. We're doing this on Zoom so we can finally like see each other yes, live. So we can see what they all look and like. And now we're just screwing with each other. Yes. Yeah. Finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy and host of the Strange Arrivals podcast and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Are you all right, Toby? You look very intense tonight. You got the black hoodie. You're doing the squinty eyes. What is going yeah, on over there? It's my Antifa look. <laughs> you look like the Unabomber. <laughs> I've, I've got to work on the mustache. Mm. Yeah. So, Kevin, congratulations on your resplendent star turn. I don't need to be congratulated Ooh. for doing my job, Rebecca. Thank you for taking over for me. Uh, as our audience knows, I was unable to host because of a sudden onslaught of what has since been diagnosed by all of my friends who are doctors as definitely food poisoning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Felt like someone all of a sudden reached their hand into my body, grabbed my guts and twisted them. 
like that. It was terrible. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. For- and everybody said the show was so much better. Yes, they all said that. They also said your joke at the end was superior. <laughs> it was horrible. I forgot to write one. <laughs> it's okay. I always rewrite yours on the fly. It all yeah, works out. Now you know why, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, Laura, how are you doing over there in your room of bliss or whatever the hell it's called? The room of tranquility. <laughs> I, I'm doing I'm doing well. Like, this room has kind of changed my life. I don't freeze to death while taping this podcast. Mm. And I come up here at night and watch British crime shows, nice. and nobody complains about it. Nice. Mm. Right. Well, that sounds like everyone's doing I well. I still don't know why it took five years <laughs> for you to use the room that nobody in your house was using. Is it but a, you recording said, on a freezing porch? I'm going out on the screen porch, you know, where the wind is blowing in, and it's hot in the summertime, and there's owls and mosquitoes, and mm. it's like the... What the hell? It's actually an enclosed porch, but it's cold because the heat doesn't go out there. But, you know, this room was sort of like everybody has that room in their house, I think, or someplace that becomes like the junk drawer of your house. That's Kevin's office in our house. And (laughs) this room has been through so many incarnations. And finally, in pandemic times, I just hauled everything out of here, repainted it. And I was like, I'm claiming this. Hmm. Good. So... Mm -hmm. You seem to have repainted it basically the same color that my yeah. place no. is that everybody was giving me such a hard time no, about. No, hers is different. <laughs> hers is lemon yellow. Yours is morning pea yellow. Actually, it's very mine different. Is, <laughs> mine isn't even really yellow. It's actually Carrington beige, but it's because of the twinkle lights right now at night. It looks yellow. Got it. It, it looks yellow. Mm-hmm. But women see like six more shades, six times as many shades as men. <laughs> yes. So. Yes. That might be part of it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we know the difference yellow. between lemon yellow and morning pea yellow for sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Are you guys ready to record a podcast and do some reviews? Yes. Let's get it done. Leading off. I said, hey, uh, do you have a line on this person? And they said, yeah, he's in police custody right now. I said, no, he's not. He's down here. On the bio, we just fished him out of the bio. In 1977, Jose Campos Torres was beaten and drowned by Houston police officers. After facing few consequences for his death, the frustration with the department by the city's long-maligned Latino community boiled over during a riot at a Cinco de Mayo festival in Moody Park. Police right now are calling for an ambulance as this officer lies seriously wounded here in the street. A car came by with two or three occupants, drove right over and kept on going. When a crime wave later hit the Spanish-speaking barrios, authorities created a new unit of Latino officers to investigate a backlog of open cases within a community reluctant to work with the cops. It became known as the Chicano Squad. With almost no training, they are tasked with solving a group of supposedly unsolvable homicides. And then the other shoe drops. This experiment has a ticking clock. The guys have only 90 days to reverse the tide of unsolved murders and the expanding rift within the Latino community or HPD would have to think of something else. In the new podcast, Chicano Squad, from Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, host Cristela Alonso traces the origins of the unit given 90 days to solve the city's most difficult crimes. And the story of the Mexican-American officers resented by both their colleagues and the community they hope to serve. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about significant plot points from Chicano Squad. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. For our thumbs up or thumbs down review. 
Kevin Flynn. Yes. I know that we may have quibbles with the podcast later on or criticisms about structure and story and all that, but I just have to ask you two questions. Mm -hmm. Is the theme song of this podcast not awesome? I love it. Me too. I love it, but I'm going to give you a secret. Play it at one and a half speed, <laughs> where it's a little faster, and it's almost like you could dance to it a little bit. It's good. I could dance to it at one time speed. I think they have listened to a, a whole bunch of Wondery podcasts, and they said the secret is a kick-ass theme song. Well, better theme song, I think. Yeah, even better theme song. But Kevin, my second question for you. Yeah. I really want to talk about the story first before we talk about, you know, how it was told and so forth. Yeah. Would this not be the basis of a kick-ass oh, Netflix series? I, yes. Like a la Mindhunter or like a limited series, HBO series? I, I could see it as a dramatic series, uh, you know, a, t- a, a period piece. Yeah. I mean, 1970s and, you know, a lot of the issues, of course, are still relevant today, whether you're doing nonfiction or a, f- a fictionalized version. I think this would lend itself very well to a police drama because it's a unique story. Um, and, yeah, I'd love to see it. Of course, I think that's sort of, if if they haven't sold the IP already. Yeah, they have, I'm sure. The intellectual, I mean, this has now become part of the podcast industry is where they may not make all of their money in ads, but the financial benefit usually comes from selling the intellectual property now to TVs and movies and stuff because we keep talking about stuff that was a podcast and now it's a whatever. Yeah. If you're out there and you're buying stuff for Netflix. And you haven't yet bought this. You buy this. I, I it think would it's be really great, good. Yeah, it's a great concept. All right, Laura. So we have a host of this podcast, Cristela Alonzo, who's not a journalist, but I think is extremely well suited to host this and kind of does a kick-ass job both, you know, relating to the story enough that we feel like she is qualified to tell it, but also just like telling it well. What do you think of Cristela as a host? Well, I like her as a host. And in, in the first episode, I thought, well, this is perfect. I mean, she's clearly she's from this area. She's got a connection. She's an activist. As it went along, I guess I felt like I would like to hear more of her brought Mm. into the narration. I felt like it was more like somebody else did the reporting and she did the, um, you know, the voiceover and the narration, even though she clearly had a connection to this area. She had personal feelings about the case. I felt like if she was going to be the host in this position, because I've seen interviews with her. I've read some of the interviews where she shares stories about growing up there and situations she encountered. Not that I want to have that sort of hijack the rest of this story, but I felt like I would like to see a little bit more of that. I do like how she's kind of a concierge for us through the podcast. Like she, you know, first of all, Houston, what a fucked up place that is. This is like the second podcast we've done about Houston this year. We did the um, Astros one, right? Uh, Yeah, The Edge. Which also talked about sort of like the founding of Houston. Toby, it just makes me think about every time we hear something where a city is a character and they actually talk about like how the city came to be. The American story of cities and places, like you think about a European city and it just feels like it's been there forever. And in the United States, a city like Houston, which is one of the largest cities in America, the origin story is always like somebody had a piece of land and wanted to make a thing and it was next to a river and that was good for trade. And now we have a city. I found like Houston as a city to be a really compelling character in this. What do you think? Uh, Not so much. (laughs) 
Why not? Um, no, it's yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think Houston, I don't go into the whole thing, but but it also it, it transforms into, you know, Space City USA or whatever. It also gets to the space industry as well. So, Toby, one of the things I think, looking at everyone's notes and knowing what my notes are in my head that we all may agree on is that the story is interesting, but the structuring of the way this podcast tells the story is not necessarily the most inviting. Can you just talk about how the podcast is laid out and what you think about that? Sure. So I, I feel like I have a lot of sympathy for them when they were trying to map this thing out, because I think there's just there are things in the story that would have made it hard no matter how they tried to organize it. So, you know, clearly the hook of the Chicano squad is awesome. Uh, it is, it's a great concept, but it's like, how, how do you get there? And the choice that they make is to start off briefly with this riot, but then going back to what, what was the, what was the roots of the riot? And that is basically the murder by the police of this guy, Jose Campos Torres. So you spend two episodes kind of following this case. And this encompasses, as you were saying, the the history of Houston and then the Houston police force and its relationship with the Latino community leading to this this case where they beat this guy and then either put him into uh, the water or sort of force him to do it himself and he drowns. And then sort of the fallout from this. So that so that was two episodes. And so you haven't gotten to the squad yet. And then the third episode is largely sort of a biographical episode of, you know, the policeman who they're sort of following the closest. Cecil. And to me, that slowed way, way down. But again, you you don't even get to the real Chicano squad stuff until about halfway through that episode. So you're, you know, you're almost two and a half hours into this thing before the Chicano squad really sort of pops up. And it goes from there on and, and sort of talks about their their work, their adventures, the challenges they face and stuff like that. So given these different elements, and we're only four episodes in, it's like, how do you arrange those in a way that makes sense in terms of storytelling, in terms of pacing, uh, you know, flow, but then also getting to the meat of the podcast, like the main, the main focus? I, I don't know how I would have arranged it differently, but it does, I think the nature of, of the content makes it hard. And I, and I, and I think it doesn't, doesn't flow as well as some other ones that have sort of more logically flowing content do. Well, I have an idea on how to redo that. So it's do first, I. <laughs> first of all, the, the origin story shouldn't take two episodes. Right. Right. I mean, that's what you were saying, right? That nobody goes to see Bruce Wayne not be Batman and then wait for the sequel to see him become Batman. Right. That whole story, while it's interesting because the co- the context, the historical context is really important, that you could have put a lot of that stuff in one episode and then got us going. You said like the middle of the third episode. We don't really see, hear the Chicano squad go out and start doing cases till the beginning of the fourth episode. Now, I understand this is going to be 11 episodes long, so the, in the total balance of things that maybe, you know, I feel like, okay, that's probably... You know, it's probably going to be, you know, good enough that you, know, you had to wait a little while because it's a whole big thing, whatever. You know, still, we write books, and if the action in our books doesn't start until almost a quarter of the way through, or uh, almost a, maybe more than that, a third of the way through, then people are putting down our books. And so I feel like at least now that there's enough episodes out that you can binge and get through that, 
that I'd say, okay, that's good, keep going. But I, 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 there's got to be people that listened to the first two episodes and said on Tuesday, well, I don't know if I want to wait around a whole other week. I'm not ex- waiting for what are they going to start talking about this Chicano squad next week. I'll tell you, I was listening very much like with an editor's ear. It's something mm-hmm. I've been thinking about a lot lately. For me, it's a like all the pieces are here. It's a very easy fix you start with a chicano squad scene like that's how the tv show would start it would start with this like badass group of like rookie detectives with no training who are actually solving tons of murders start with them that's how the laura bricker pet detective series starts yeah then roll back rolling in saying drop the hamster motherfucker (laughs) yes and then (laughs) Then, cut to her origin story yeah then you roll back to like what the context is then you get the personal stories but there was also some strange editing choices even within the episode so there were a couple times where like in episode four they mentioned that woman diana's murder at the beginning her going missing at the beginning because he like was friends with that family who owned that club then they completely drop it and then they talk about it again like two-thirds of the way through the episode as if it's a, th- a reveal that we don't know even though they told us at the beginning that so it's just it feels like i don't have a problem with that well but... i'll tell you i'll tell you what i think is happening yeah i think there is among podcast makers in the criminal justice and true crime space there's a fear of not being crappy right so they check i would hope so so they but they check all the boxes of things that are problematic and they say as long as we've solved that it's not problematic so they think if we spend a lot of time on a victim at the beginning Uh then it won't be problematic if we do things like over explain how much research we did to find out if this shooting story is true, then it won't be problematic when we get emails about is that cop shooting story. Like I hear them trying to solve problems that I as a listener have not actually flagged. Like that's what I hear. And if I were editing this, I would just go in and say, all the pieces are here, but just cut this, cut this, rearrange this. That's how I felt about it. Um, Laura, I don't want to like be leaguer, like the the structural problems. I do want to talk mm-hmm. about a little bit about the story. Um, what did you think of the details of this Jose Campos Torres murder? I mean, they say they do spend two episodes on it, so we hear a lot about how it happened. What did you just think about that story in general? I thought that was a really compelling story. And I think, you know, regardless of where in the podcast it came, you know, it certainly adds a lot of context to how we end up with the Chicano squad being formed, what situations and, you know, what what the scene was before that in this area in terms of racism and the relationship with the police. But it was like freaking horrific, I, it, you know, listening to I think for me, the part that struck me is this guy's like a Vietnam veteran and he's trained to like fight back and he can't fight back to save his life in the situation that he finds himself in. And just the scene of him being, you know, dumped into this water and left there. He refused to submit to the beating, which made the officers angrier. Carlos Elliott stepped away for a moment, returning to the car to take a radio call. And the next thing he knew, he heard a splash and saw a figure in the water of the bayou below. It was really horrific, but I think even more so is then when you hear the flip side, when we finally find out what happens to the police officers in this case, and you're like, are you freaking kidding me? A dollar fine and no jail time? For almost a minute, I almost thought, oh, it's going to be different this time. Yeah, they fired him and they were really mad. And so, yeah, they went went to jail. And for a whole minute, I was, oh, shit. You know what I was really surprised by? Shame on me for even thinking that. I'd love to know if, Toby, were you surprised by even the amount of press coverage this case got at the time in the 70s? It sounded like 
like contemporary press coverage, everybody is super outraged that this happened. I I was almost surprised by how much media frenzy it caused. And then I thought, wait, in the interstitial time, did we just become so used to police violence against people of color that it stopped being a big story, but it actually could have been a big story and overcome it that? You know what I mean, Toby? It just felt like the media like really took an interest in this. Yeah, I I don't know why that particular case, and I guess part of it is, and she kind of mentions it, is, you know, he was like a clean cut guy. He was a veteran, you know, all these sort of problematic assumptions that you make about somebody or, or the interest that people have in somebody who's like that rather than, you know, somebody with a different appearance. And it's also kind of funny because when she talks about the squad, she makes it sound like these guys aren't that clean cut. Yeah. You know, they're like facial hair that only somebody in the 70s could get away with. <laughs> Pinstripe suits from Men's Warehouse. So, Toby, can I just ask you quickly, did that make you think they had porn star mustaches? That's the only oh, thing I can 100%. think of. And then I was just like, Lamb that was when I was like, this has got to be a TV series. 100%. Because... It'll just look so awesome. And like the Beastie Boys sabotage has to play when they walk slowly in slow motion into the squad room. Like 100%, I can see it. You got the captain who doesn't understand them. <laughs> it's like the law doesn't work for the victims. <laughs> I think it is kind of interesting, though, you know, when you have a place like Houston where, you know, apparently police violence is fairly prevalent, it's like, why does one case like kind of push it over the edge? Why was this case so compelling to people that not only did it get a lot of coverage, but it starts a riot and and ends up, you know, according to this, leading to uh, this sort of experiment in having actual Chicanos investigate crimes involving other Chicanos. Who, yeah. would, who would have guessed? Speaking yeah. the language is helpful. It's, an, it's interesting <laughs> to me. I think the reason the crime popped is because that boat guy just like talked about it. Right. And also oh, I mean, if the if. The body wasn't discovered by the... Well, those... he was also sort of like outspoken about it. And then yeah. also you have the situation where um, I think what also really made it pop, for lack of a better word, is that they brought him to the jail. So there was a record that he had been arrested. Right. And so he was supposed to they be... They couldn't a... deny that they never saw They couldn't yeah. deny they that he died out, by yeah. misadventure in some way because there was a paper trail to show that they tried to book him and then the people in the jail said... You know, we're going to need to go to the hospital. It is funny when she says something about like the reflexive thing about cops at that time was to have each other's backs. And I was like, at that time, like, what are you talking right. about? <laughs> like, that is definitely very much still a thing. So, Laura, there were a lot of very timely aspects to this podcast, which, you know, are sort of laid out for us and we're told that it's timely. But were you surprised to hear how contemporary so much of this sounded? Yes. And this isn't the first podcast or documentary that we've, you know, reviewed on this podcast that has dealt with things like racial bias and policing issues in a historical context. But I mean, this is going back to 1977. You know, that's like a year after I was born for crying out loud. And um, we know how old Laura is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, you know, that was the hook at the beginning of the podcast in, in terms of, you know, putting it out there that everybody's talking about the situation that's going on currently in contemporary America and, you know, putting out there, this, this isn't new, this has been going on for a long time. So I think when you hear that, then, you know, my thought immediately goes to, what the hell? Like, have we really not gotten any further in like almost 45 years? Nope. Nope. 
<laughs> like, <laughs> you have not. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, I have another question for you, Laura. So the way they formed the squad was they decided that it was needed. Mm-hmm. They basically recruited all these inexperienced cops, gave them murder cases, and then made them work out of a utility closet. <laughs> 24 hours. I mean, I thought it was very interesting that they were on call all the time. Like they were so, they were both so essential and so mistreated at the same time. But you know, also so dedicated. The they way were Cecil dedicated. Me, he's like, I, were, I didn't stop working for. But they were also I kept working. They were taken advantage of. Sure. And yeah. they were looked down upon both by the detectives and those who weren't detectives who felt like they had cut in line yeah. and got to work in homicide. Laura, just what did you think of that setup? Like you had these guys. Let's bring them in. Let's stick them in a closet. And with no training, no detectivery skills, we're just going to send them out to solve murders. Yeah, that was another um, moment where I was like, huh, so they're trying to come across like they're doing a good thing here, which is, oh, we're going to address crimes in our area where we need a Spanish speaking police officer to go out and investigate or a detective to investigate these homicides. But at the same time, we're giving them no respect, no training no help, and sticking them in a utility closet. So I was kind of like, are they just doing sort of like lip service by creating this squad? Even though the squad does end up going out and, you know, solving cases. And and the one guy, you know, we hear about how he gets his promotion to becoming a detective. I just felt like whoever was organizing this, I wouldn't say it was like an afterthought, but it was like, oh, yeah, this is great. We're going to do this, but we're not going to really put our money where our mouth is here. Toby, our protagonist in the episodes we've heard is a cop, Cecil, and there is a big right now in media and journalism sort of pushback to having a cop as a protagonist telling you their point of view of how things happened and like approaching it with some credulousness is like a big like, you know, thing right now where people are like, do not have that be your primary source. How do you think this podcast handles that in the aggregate? I mean, there is some. Uh, like I said, due diligence saying like we checked and this is true. We checked and we couldn't verify this, but it seemed to be true. Did you like Cecil, first of all? And do you think they do a good job with that balance, sort of knowing the story is about problematic cops and and, the, and what was done to solve that problem, but then also having a cop as the protagonist tell that story? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's one of those things where the fullness of all the episodes will probably give us a little more perspective on that. I mean, I think the trust but verify thing is is probably the way you have to go. Like, I don't think necessarily that, like, you can't have cops as a protagonist. Like, that, that seems like a step in the wrong direction, you know? But I do think, you know, eyes wide open and that you can't just, like, have that be the only voice. And, and I do think, you know, again, and I think this can cut both ways, but the, the sort of, you know, story of the underdog is appealing, um, and I think that that's kind of what what makes this this story potentially so good. But at the same time, I think that sometimes you're you're willing to kind of overlook other things, yeah, uh, because you find that stuff appealing. So again, you mean like I, the illegal it, cocaine buy, just putting their own money together to <laughs> do a cocaine <laughs> sting that their bosses didn't know about? Let me hey change man, out of my uniform for a second. <laughs> it, it's cute when they do it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see uh, how they how they continue going. Um, but you know, he, I mean, he, he comes across as likable, and I think, you know, hopefully they they go they talk a little bit about how. 
in in some quarters, like he's looked at as at as a as a traitor, right? You know, he's he's joined the enemy, uh, and it's going back to his community, and and that's not looked on favorably. So I think there's a lot of interesting stuff at play, and him as a protagonist, more as a main character necessarily than like a nonstop hero. You know, I think would make for an interesting series. I do feel like we have to tell the story on Cecil's back because otherwise we don't have a protagonist, which also means we have to like him. Mm -hmm. And I do like Cecil. And I think, you know, to the point about his credibility, can we trust him as a narrator because he's in law enforcement? Does he, you know, that kind of thing? I think it was important for the podcast to point out that even though we hear sort of his, his last night on uniform patrol, he gets involved in a shooting. It shows that they they show that like over the rest of his 20 or 30 year career, whatever it was, there were no other complaints against him. Never used his weapon. Never, never fired his weapon again. And, you know, it's so it's it kind of lends itself to the to the credibility that he's a a good cop, but for lack of a better term, right? Yeah, yeah. So somebody that we can we can trust, because we have to like him. If right. we if we if we think he's you know shady, then it changes the whole complexion of the podcast. Yeah. And I think that you know I just want to hear you know a little more from him. I like you have to go through the you know bi- biographical stuff. You don't like it, Rebecca, when you feel like it's checking a box. I like it in this case because I think the question of, hey, Cecil, why would you, as a uh, Mexican-American, want to get involved in the police department when you said your brothers were all getting arrested? I think him explaining that rounds out his character, makes him a more well-rounded character and somebody that we understand a little better. I want to be a policeman. His mother's jaw hit the floor. She says, por qué? Look at the way the policemen treat your brothers. I said, that's why. I told her, I want to see what's the other side of that fence. I was fine with that part. Yeah. I just thought the part about, like, he and his wife were going back and forth, and he moved in with his partner. And Bobby! This is too much. To me, it was just oh, like, uh, I know those things that, things that you love, and I'm like, I don't really need to know that he's going back and forth from his house, but whatever. I do like, I will say, that they do show the warts. Like, they mention without comment that the cops are getting free coffee and snacks from the store, which I know that happens, but it's also not okay. They mentioned that like- It's a different while, time, Rebecca. They also mentioned like while they're on duty and they go to make an arrest, they eat dinner with the family before they arrest the dog. Oh, that was wild. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's explained away as cultural, but it's also like a little bit weird, but that's warty. I actually, oh, yeah. I think the warty stuff makes it better, not worse. You know what I mean? Like I actually think that's more humanizing than saying we spent- 12 months digging into this file to make sure he's a good guy. Like, I'd rather hear it, you know, than to be shown mm-hmm. it. You know what I mean? You make up the word warty. I did make up the adjective? word warty. Um, yeah, so, right. Laura, quick question for you. We know the name of the podcast is Chicano Squad. We know that's what these guys are called. Mm-hmm. We hear that they needed a name and that there's a journalist down the hall who was asked to give them a name, but then we don't actually hear them being given a name. Do you feel like we should have just gone in with Chicano Squad? Like, that should have been the thing that framed this whole thing. Oh, absolutely. Because we have, what, four episodes? I'm like, I would have started episode one with the information in episode four, like back in, you know, the late 70s, maybe a a little short context, like a couple sentences, putting it into perspective, introduce the Chicano squad. Start with Cecil getting called in by the lieutenant to ask him to join. What is this all about, right? Yeah, exactly. And then 
once the story gets going and you've got this action going, then you're going backwards into the story of Jose Campos Torres. And then you're going into what was happening on Cinco de Mayo in response to that and how this came about. Because I felt like that was the name of this podcast. And I was like, um, hmm. So I feel like all the information is there. It's just could be in a different order. I want to be in the showrunner's writer's room when they make the TV show about this and argue about what scene should be first. To me, it's wearing a men's warehouse pinstripe suit walking in slow motion into the squad room. Toby, what do you think? Uh, well, I was just going to say, I, you know, I, I think the issue, I mean, I think the reason why they started the way they did is, especially with podcasts, I think there's, like, you don't want to start something and then have, like, an hour and a half of something else before you get back to it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I just know from Strange Arrivals that you have to make decisions based on that. And and my guess is that they ran into that, which is because I, I actually thought that the whole Jose Campos thing was the most interesting parts of the first four episodes. So I think they said, you know, we, we need to tell this story. Is it something we can drop into the middle or at least like episode two or three without having people when we get back to the Chicano squad being like, OK, what the fuck's going on? So my, my guess is that that was what was coming up with them. It didn't have me second guessing a whole lot. And I think they tried to start off with a little bit of a bang by starting with that riot. Hmm. So they start with the riot and they basically episode two ends with the riot and then they uh, move on again. Yeah. But that, that, that was just my sense of it. We also got a Geraldo sighting, right, Toby? A Geraldo sighting <laughs> is awesome. We, this is actually a double Geraldo episode for us. <laughs> oh, right. We got Geraldo in the second half, too. Yeah. First. I forgot about that. Oh. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out The Chicano Squad? It's a brand new podcast with a freaking awesome theme song. I want to drop it here right again. Uh, Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for The Chicano Squad? Yeah, I'm going to go thumbs up with this just because I think that, you know, I'm I'm really happy that we're hearing so many podcasts from different perspectives and different communities with regard to policing. And I think this is a story that I had not heard of, which is something they tell us right off the bat at the beginning. I bet you haven't heard of this story. And I think, you know, it's got great voices. It's, you know, there's some things that I would do differently but overall, I think it's a really interesting story. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the Chicano Squad? Yeah, I give, I give it a thumbs up. I, I'm looking forward to the rest of it. I thought the first two episodes were super strong. It was weird. Like the pacing, I guess we didn't talk about the pacing as much. But that it, it starts off, I think, perfectly. Third episode's a little slow. Fourth episode's a little fast. Um, but it's a really interesting story. And if they've got 11 episodes, I imagine there's a lot more to it. So thumbs up. Kevin Flynn, thumbs up or thumbs down for the Chicano Squad. I'm going thumbs up. I think it's a good podcast, good start. I think it's great. I think it has, you know, some sort of structural flaws here that we've talked about. It's called the Chicano Squad. The episode should be about the Chicano Squad, you know, and and not uh, sort of the build up to it. But now that we're there in the storytelling, it should be every episode ought to be about a case or a couple of cases intertwined or whatever and, and moving that forward. That's I just find the whole concept really intriguing. And so it's one of those like stories where you're like, oh, I just want to pull up a chair and grab my popcorn and hear all about it. I just want it told you know, a little more concisely so we get to the meat of the story sooner. Otherwise, I'd say, hey, uh, give it a try. 
Yeah, I like it too. I'm going to give it a thumbs up. I do think it has structural problems. I actually think the structural problems are opposite of Toby's. I think the first two episodes have the strongest story but are put together in a not great way that sort of draws it out in such a way that you feel like you know. Like halfway through, you know, you get it, you know. And I I do feel like that was structurally problematic. Honestly, this just needs like one editor in the room just to be like, move this, move this. And it could have been fantastic. It's good, but it could have been fantastic. I cannot wait to see the TV show of this story. I honestly, I know we're going to watch it. We're going to be super into it. We will review it when it comes out. And it can be like, remember when we reviewed the podcast that this was based on? It's going to be awesome. They're like, TV show from your lips to God's ears. (laughs) So I'm going to give the Chicano Squad a thumbs up. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Psst. Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious as well. All right, Kevin, you hear that music? How does that go? Ba-da-ba-da. What does that mean? It means uh, Chicano Squad. It means we are in the business oh, section. Oh, business section. We should be so lucky to have a theme song like the Chicano Squad a for the business section. theme song? Yeah, That'd be great. Yes, yeah, caught in the in-between, man. Donde esta tu madre? <laughs> That's the only Spanish Donde you know. esta la biblioteca? <laughs> So, Kevin, here we are in the business yeah. section. What do we have going on our Patreon right now? Well, we got a couple of great things. We've got the Crime Writers on After Show, which is in your feed right now. What are we talking about? We're going to be talking a little bit about stuff that we've been consuming in our pop culture. Our monthly pop culture check-in. Yeah, because we've been we've been watching a few new things on TV, and uh, we'll touch base on that. Maybe we'll talk a little more about your diarrhea. No. Can we talk a little bit about my new relationship with Preet Bahara? Oh, sure. Yeah. Drop a name, girl. Yeah, my new best friend, Preet. We also have a new episode out of Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast. No, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast. Say it how you want. You gotta learn how to tomato, say that. Tomato, tomato. Uh, talking about the Feather Thief. They had a great discussion. The panel was kind of subpar. Mm. They had, you know, a couple of good people there. They also had someone named uh, Laurie Bricky. Ah. She didn't, I don't think she actually read the book. Huh. Uh But uh, they did that. And also, we have a new episode of, of um, Married with Podcast. Rebecca gives uh, alternative sexual advice to yes. a woman who has painful intercourse. Yes. 
I give very good advice. I also give amazing advice about family issues. Yeah. That people who have been weighing in big time on our Facebook page are like, yes, yes, yes. And there's that one woman who's had a a relationship for 30 years, and we decided, yeah, that it's time to dump that basic bitch. (laughs) Because she's been mean to you. True. True facts. All right, so Kevin, how can people get all that great content? Hey, you just go to uh, patreon.com slash partners in crime media. It's in the first two seconds of this podcast, for yes. fuck's sake, but all right. <laughs> we make so much extra content we do, yeah. We make like four extra podcasts for our Patreon. Yeah, and they're, by the way, they're all different levels that you can join at. You know, for the $5, you get exclusive content from six. It also comes with Laura's uh, Leave It to Bricker podcast. At the $25 level, not only can you watch Toby and his guests record the deep dive every month, but you can take part. Because those listeners get to chat and they can have to ask questions. They even come on the video and be part of the club. Yeah. The, the book club. So it's, it's a lot of great stuff. Yes. And if you join and pay for a year in advance, one of us will call you on and the probably phone. Kevin. Well, no. I'm Listen, I made a call today. It was wonderful. Wow. She wasn't so there made, and I left a message. Point. 0.3% of the number that Yes, uh, Kevin's Kevin full-time has. job now is now calling our Patreons, but I did call Alicia today. I left a message for her. She's then she texted me back. She seems lovely. If I call you by the way, you can text me whenever you want. That is one of the benefits of paying for a year in advance. Hear that gentleman? On Patreon. So All did right. Preparara sign up for a full year of Patreon? No, is that not what we're yet. But that's about? next. Oh. We're going to get okay. that ne- we're going to get that follower next. He we did are. send a just for the fun of it. No, he didn't. No. Oh, my God. Jeez, Kevin. That wasn't him. news. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's so inappropriate. So, Kevin, before we wrap up the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Ann Daly and, to continue my streaks of Jennifer's, Jennifer Ruth. Nice. Bless you. And thus ends the business section. Yes. Should we fade that music down? There it goes. Moving on. It didn't matter how good of a person you were or how well you took care of your kids. All of that goes out the window. You, you won't even realize it because you're so busy getting high. It was the party drug of the elite. But when suppliers learned how to make a cheap form of rock cocaine, it created a new crisis of addiction in black communities and provided fast money for those with few economic opportunities. I seen people sell crack to their own mother, you know? I was like, yo, she's going to get it from somewhere. You know, I might as well give it to her. We were just being street capitalists. But the rise of crack led to violent turf wars, sensationalized media coverage, heavy-handed policing, all in an era where everyone either wanted to look tough on crime or wanted part of the action. So instead of uh, sending him to jail, you take his drugs and his money. Were you ever afraid that one of your fellow officers might turn you in? Never. Why not? Because it was the blue wall of silence. Netflix's crack, cocaine, corruption, and conspiracy shows the falling dominoes from a burgeoning drug economy to the societal backlash to a political movement whose legislation disproportionately affected communities of color. Told by historians, journalists, and former users, the documentary explores the drug's damage and the misconceptions which inform policies that are still in practice today. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for crack, cocaine, corruption, and conspiracy. So to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down reviews. 
So, Lara, we talked a little bit about some of the organizational and structural issues with the podcast we just reviewed, but this one is very cleanly organized. What do you think of the chapter kind of book format of crack, cocaine, corruption, and conspiracy? By the way, can I just call it crack from now on? You guys are cool with that? We know what you're talking about, yeah. What do you think of the structure of this documentary, Lara? I liked it. We all know I sometimes have a hard time following things when they're not like clearly (laughs) structured. And this was what, an hour and a half. And we had different chapter breaks related to different, you know, time periods, uh, topics, themes. And I found like because of that, because of the way that it was broken up into these different sections for me, it was it was really easy to sort of digest the information, take in the information, understand what was happening. But it was also interesting. So it Mm. wasn't like I was doing like, you know, a book report for school or something. It was actually interesting the way that it was. I mean, I guess I could do a book report, but. I, I liked it. And I think that it, it the way that it was laid out like that, it gave both, you know, a look at the crack epidemic and also different issues that contributed to its rise. And I thought it was really interesting. Kevin? Well, there's a sort of a clean through line with, you know, sort of the what happened with crack. And it, it is I don't believe it's overly reductive to say, look, A led to B, led to C, led to D. And that means for that makes for a very clean story for the documentary. You start off with, here is a drug that is super cheap and highly addictive. And what does that lead to? Well, a lot of money. And then that means, you know, in the communities. And that means, well, that's going to lead to violence. And that's going to lead to shakedowns. And that's going to, and boom, boom, boom. And it's like, it's almost like you could have seen that. If you say, if you said, hey, all this crack, if we put it on the street, we're going to wind up with 2 million black people in uh, jail. You say, oh, well, that's not going to happen. But you see, oh, my gosh, it was so predictable. Yes. When you look and back. And preventable. And preventable. Yes. yes. And by the way, a lot of those crack users were white, which is kind of what this yes, is about. But not a lot of them were arrested. That's right. Yeah. That's kind of what this documentary is about, Toby. I mean, we can't not compare the way the crack epidemic was treated by police, by media, by communities, by politicians, by moms and dads differently. It's impossible not to compare that with the way the opioids epidemic has been treated by all of those same stakeholders, right? So this is a story about race, right, Toby? Yeah. And I I think that's one of the good things about the simple structure is that the actual sort of argument that they're making in this documentary, I think is pretty nuanced in that it's talking about how the crack epidemic was sort of racialized. And in some ways, that's a reflection of a real situation, uh, which is that that once it became cheap, you didn't have to be wealthy, like uh, people who are doing cocaine were. But the way that it was portrayed in the media uh, in particular, but also amongst politicians and things like that, was that it was a black drug, which was not actually the case. I think there's a lot of parallels that they don't really talk about, but it's it's around the same time that the whole welfare queen myth came out and started to be uh, associated with African-Americans. So it's kind of a complicated story. And I I think they do a good job of kind of, of making it comprehensible. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on. There is the government's either complicity or at least sort of neglect of uh, bringing cocaine in, particularly from Nicaragua, at the same time. Wait, that Toby, past- you you buy that though, right? Because I buy that that's the case. I mean, that is the case. Yeah. Why don't we talk about that like all the time? It's it's interesting because I I know that that's 
when I, I was on a jury in D.C., which is, you know, overwhelmingly black city. So I was I was one of two white people and then there were 10 black people on this jury. And while we, we came to an agreement on whether the person was guilty or not guilty, and then the talk while we were waiting for everybody to reassemble was about how the CIA was, you know, supplying drugs into the black neighborhoods of D.C., which is not something I'd heard about before. It was just super interesting because I was like, I, I don't know about this, but everybody else seems to. And, and that's that's wild that I don't. Hmm. Um, and that was in like 1993, maybe. And the San Jose Mercury News uh, did an investigative report about this. There was a movie that was made about it. So this has been a, a, a thing that's been sort of out there and has been known. But it's not something I, it's never gotten the kind of mass media treatment and I don't think even this really does. Right. You know, it's like one of several factors that they talk about. It's one of many shitty factors in the a, way the government fails. Yeah. It's a, it's a it's a crazy and damning story, which I I think there's there's probably adequate evidence to to take it super seriously. Now, Laura, one of the things that's a huge theme in the documentary is the politicizing of the crack epidemic and how it is used to infuse fear. Uh, into white communities to get them to support politicians and policies that are seen as like extremely anti-drug. And one of the messaging features that came from this that I think we all remember is the ubiquitous say no to drug campaigns that were everywhere. This is your this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. The Just Say No campaign was unprecedented in its scope and its intensity. That's right. They know the crack. Or you can live. If you've got to die for something, this sure as hell ain't it. Crack isn't just wrong. Could be dead wrong. Laura, do you remember all that stuff? And does it still stick with you today? You know, I think it's saying something that I remember that and I didn't even have like real TV growing up. And <laughs> Picked it up on the street. I, you know, the fact that I everybody remembers that commercial with the fried egg and then there was posters with it. And then there was that other commercial, the one that I learned it by watching you, dad. Remember that commercial? Oh yeah, the pot commercial. And that kid went to do his like junior year at the mountain school, which is at the end of the road where I grew up, which was like the junior year program for Milton Academy. That actual kid from that commercial? Yeah. The and from and they were like, kid? that's the kid from the drug commercial. And like, he was like famous in my little, you know, my little town because he was and there. they said, I learned it by watching you. <laughs> um, but I was like, I was just struck by, you know, the effective messaging because I, I know, I mean, we all reference this. I mean, how many times do you reference, oh, don't fry your brain on drugs and stuff? Like, could we not find a better way to message about wearing your darn mask during coronavirus? Like, seriously, like something that's going to stick like the messaging from the 80s did on the just say no to drugs. Listen, we're not comfortable. I mean, it's probably good that... Things that are fact-based are not comfortable using fear as a tactic in the same way that things that are conspiracy-based are comfortable using fear as a tactic. That being said, fear as a tactic is not used appropriately for things you should actually be afraid of. <laughs> Masking up would have been a good opportunity. I agree. Kevin, I have a question for you. Yeah. The sources in this documentary, to me, are fascinating. You've got, like, activists. You've got, like, all the right people. But you also have... Former users, former dealers. What did you think of the sourcing of this documentary? I like the people that they talked to. I mean, it, it's worth noting that 
almost all of them are people of color. Yeah. They're experts in their field. Yeah. Uh, we've got like a brain scientist and we've got some journalists and activists, former cops, a lot of former users. So they do an excellent job of explaining the historical context but they, a lot of them also have uh, personal anecdotes that also inform the, the story. So I think you get like a one-two punch with a lot of these, these folks. And so it also means that you're not just, you know, sort of getting this somebody telling you what's in a textbook. It brings a lot more to it when not only can they speak to it, but they can speak to it on a personal level as well. Yeah. Now, Toby, there's a big theme also in the documentary about making white people care which is a thing that is what the media is about. Like, how do we get white people to care about this? Or is this a thing white people will care about? That seems to be like what a lot of crime stories are based on. Like when you see the missing Mm -hmm. white girl, but you don't see the missing black girl, for instance. But one of the ways that white people were made to care about this was by the media making an example of Len Bias uh, dying from a crack overdose. This was a, and I'm putting this in quotey quotes because I know it's racist to say, like a quote, clean cut, relatable black kid, star basketball player, and his death suddenly made white people like really all in on this story. If police were shocked to hear the news about Len Bias's sudden death, they were just as shocked to hear that crack might have been involved. Right now, police say the case is labeled suspicious, and that's all they're saying in public. What did you think of that, Toby, that, like, we always need uh, somebody that we think of as clean or good or relatable in order to actually care about something that's deadly, that's dangerous, that's ravaging communities everywhere? Well, that was what came up in the Chicano squad, too, right, with uh, Jose Campos. Yeah. He was this clean cut. Yeah, I don't. You know, they talk about the two sort of, uh, I don't know, turning points is the right word, but flashpoints, I guess, is uh, Richard Pryor when he was yeah. freebasing and then Len Bias. And I, I think it was a, like for people who don't know who Len Bias was, like he was Michael Jordan's rival. Like they, they, they were considered on similar terms. Like Len Bias is going to be a huge, huge star in the NBA. And if you were and a it, Boston sports fan, Toby, I don't think maybe you were, but that was it was a big story that you were psyched. that he was drafted and that it was a huge story that he died because it was all of those things put on top of each yeah, other. Yeah, and, and it was I think it was the night of the draft too. It was when it was when this all happened as he was you know celebrating being drafted by the Celtics. So yeah, again, I mean it's 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 one of those things where you know there's there's a single story that I guess white people can find compelling is what actually gets things to move rather than like sort of a rolling tragedy that's consuming thousands of people and entire neighborhoods and things like that, including, uh, which they make the point a few times, that it, it it's not just, it's not a black problem, yeah. right? It was, it was, you know, more white users than black users. But again, that was not the frame that it was put in. Right. Uh, it was like crack is a black people's drug, powder cocaine is a white people's drug, and it's mostly Wall Street traders. Right. And, you know, rich frat boys. Were you guys at all surprised like I was when they talked about Richard Pryor's freebasing accident that they put a lot of actual substantive weight, historical weight on that moment? I mean, I, I knew about it, but the idea that no, that was that, that wasn't just sort of a celebrity story, that that was actually a turning point in the history of the of drug use. I didn't know what freebase was. And Richard Pryor uh, burning himself up with it was kind of the uh, the, the wake-up call to a lot of people 
that there was this other kind of way of using cocaine. I was really surprised at how weighty that was. It sounds like something that Rebecca says, like that, like just this hyperbolic thing that you have have to accept. Just say Humphrey Bogart was the first person to use a fork, and you're like, well, <laughs> okay, Rebecca, if you say so. I don't think that's the case. I obviously remember, you know, Richard Pryor's accident. It was a big deal. Was anyone else kind of surprised that, like, no, that was, like, a real historically important moment? Yeah, I mean, that's, like, when, you know, a celebrity does a thing is, like, it's like Magic Johnson getting AIDS, right? Yeah. It's like it's like people thought of it differently, cared about it more. It became part of the national conversation and not a marginalized thing that no one was doing shit about until it happened to Magic Johnson, right? right. Like it, it's People very- are like, oh, Richard Pryor like, does a lot of drugs, and some people are like... Oh, you can freebase cocaine? Yeah. It was like, oh, okay. So I guess we, we had two different takeaways from Yeah. Oh, wait, by the way, can we just go back to Lars? Like, I learned it from watching you, Dad. And, yeah. like, the big deal they made about pot in that commercial. It's actually quite funny yeah. if you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Laura, I, you know, one of the other themes of this documentary that I just loved that they really explored and uh, talked about is... You know, we hear a lot about the criminalization and demonization and fear-based media and politics around black communities. But this crack epidemic in particular had a deep, deep toll on women in the black community. I mean, that story about, I mean, I remember this, the whole crack mother story and crack babies. By the way, there's apparently like no evidence that there is such a thing as a crack baby phenomenon, which is an amazing piece of data that this includes. But you had women going- 23 kids they looked at? Yeah, you had women- 23, oh my God. But how many times have you heard crack babies? A lot, yeah, you hear yeah, it all the time. Like or you, yeah, or, yeah. Or, or, or like, or like, I adopted these kids; they were crack babies, and I, I mean, you hear it all the time. Like, yeah. it's incredible. So the the story that really, like, I can't stop thinking about ever since I watched this documentary is the woman who went to her obstetrician, and apparently this was a common thing, and said, "I want to have a healthy baby. I'm addicted to crack. I need help." And the obstetrician calls the cops instead of calling. A treatment center or giving her treatment materials. Can you imagine a white person going to their obstetrician and saying, I, I'm having a problem stopping drinking. I'm having a problem stopping using whatever designer drug I'm using. I need help. I want to have a healthy baby. And the obstetrician calling the cops. What did you think about that? That was, for me, the really rage-inducing uh, section of this this whole documentary. There was that one police officer woman who would go in and talk to the women, the pregnant women, And it seemed like she was going to help them. And then, nope, she's like entrapping them basically and then snatching their babies away. And I know that awareness of substance abuse and addiction issues really, you know, has evolved over the years. But watching this and seeing it so clearly cut and dry, how there was just no awareness of addiction, there was no compassion, there was no empathy, they were just completely villainized for coming forward and admitting they needed help for crying out loud. I mean, it was just freaking maddening. And and watching, you know, we had these clips and and, and seeing, you know, women going to the hospital and, and no sooner giving birth and their babies are taken away from them. And yeah. it's just yeah. horrible. So that part definitely, um, that was a part that stuck with me from watching this documentary. I feel like that was the part that really stood out when I finished it up. Yeah, I thought it was like an, an incredible story. And the way that they showed that women 
were shown in the, in movies and in the media, like the sort of trope. It's like like you said, Toby. It's like the welfare queen trope. We had like the crack mother trope, and like the strung out. And and you think about too all of the women who were convicted of crimes related to drugs during this period that they weren't selling, they weren't dealing. They were using and maybe living with somebody who possessed or sold, and they were given these super long sentences for just being drug adjacent. Like, it's horrifying. It's completely horrifying. Well, before we give our review, I do just want to make one note. If you want to hear a more extended conversation about this documentary, I did interview the director of it, Stanley Nelson, for the You Can't Make This Up Netflix podcast. It was a super interesting conversation. And we get into a lot of these issues in our conversation and his take on just like what he was thinking about when he made the film. And it's I think it's worth listening to. He's a really interesting guy. So let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out crack cocaine corruption and conspiracy on netflix laura bricker what do you think thumbs up or thumbs down for this documentary i I go with thumbs up you know i think this was a really interesting documentary it you know obviously shed light on this historical issue but it you know came into it setting it up with how you know this cocaine lifestyle was really glorified at this point and i can recall people that i've talked to that worked in new york at the time who still reminisce about you know, going to these the fancy parties and cocaine being on tables and bowls. And so you you hear Ooh, this. Fun. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> so you hear that setup, but then you see that is, you know, how that then sort of segues into uh, crack and it being cheap and how it's really affecting the black community and the poor community that wants to access that same lifestyle. So I thought this was really interesting. It was, you know, it wasn't super long. And it had a lot of interesting voices. I would definitely recommend. Toya Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for crack, cocaine, corruption, and conspiracy? I give it a thumbs up. I, I actually kind of wish that it, it had been like a four-part series Ooh, or something. When's the wow. last time you said you wanted something to be longer, <laughs> yeah. Toya Ball? Yeah. I mean, I, it's it's really thoughtfully done. And I, and I kind of wish he had a little more opportunity to let some of these ideas breathe a little bit and explore them a little bit more. Because I think... My guess is, is that he probably has more to say about all these things, um, and I would have been interested in hearing about it. So I guess that's a recommendation, is that it left me wanting more. So I, I give it a thumbs up. I, I, I would definitely check it out. And it's in a kind of funny spot for me. I mean, this mostly takes place like when I was in high school and college. So it, the, it was also like strangely nostalgic. <laughs> Old um, man Toby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. So I, I, I sound like I'm, I'm a equivocating. Now I thought this was really good. I just wish it could have been three times as long. You know what? I actually think that that's right. Kevin Flynn, about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for crack? I, I'm thumbs up. I think this documentary shares a lot of DNA with Thirteen. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about how did we get to the, you know, the road to mass incarceration? Well, this is where it, it doesn't start here, but this is a particular path. That was insidious. And you almost could have, I mean, you should have been able to see it coming. You almost could tell this story backwards chronologically. Start off with how do we get two million black men and women in, in prison? Well, it's because of you know these policies. And where do these policies come from? And, this, and you can work backwards. And it goes back to the CIA. And goes, what oh goes my off? God, it's fascinating. It goes back to disco and yeah. cocaine. You know, it's just, it's it's really something, it isn't oversimplified, it, but it is told in a way that is accessible. So after an hour and a half, I felt like I knew an awful lot about what was true and what wasn't about crack cocaine and how it got to be 
a problem that we still still have to deal with today. So it's educational. It's got a little bit of energy yeah. to it that a lot of these documentaries don't have. So yeah, I'm a big thumbs up for crack. Wait a minute, that's never going to be taken out of context. <laughs> I love crack. <laughs> I really liked. I really like crack too. By the way, yeah, it helps you know. Let's gift that everybody. Yeah, no, I really like this documentary. It's always surprising to me when I go into something that I think I know a lot about. Like, I feel like I know about mass incarceration. I know about, like, the racial aspects of the way the crack epidemic was treated differently than the opioid epidemic. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, I know. I learned a lot while watching this in an hour and a half. And it was entertaining. And it was compelling. The voices in it, the sourcing in it was great. I love that they included people who had been dealers and who had been users. There was a woman dealer in this documentary that, like, I want to have a drink with and, like, ask a million questions to. Oh, I forget. Yeah. Oh, my God. She's a badass. Oh, my God. I just, I want to know everything. I want to know everything. Well, as soon as you got shot and she walked herself to the hospital. <laughs> I, I just honestly, like, not and not an exploitative way like tell me everything but like i really want to know like i that and that says something when there's a subject you think you're smart about and someone can make a tight thing that makes you smarter about it or that reveals how not smart you were about it so big thumbs up for this documentary for me it's called crack cocaine corruption and conspiracy it's on netflix thumbs up do you ever meet someone who seems kind of off whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you truth finder has you covered you can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. TruthFinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to TruthFinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's TruthFinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the the week. They say good fences make good neighbors and good property surveyors make for good fences. Such was the problem in Dover, Foxcroft, Maine, where a man who believed his subdivided property line went through his neighbor's driveway cut the encroaching garage in half with a handheld reciprocating saw. Their long-standing feud boiled over when the Ritters built a retaining wall along the boundary, and Mr. Gabriel Braun began blocking the drainage pipes on his side of the property line. Braun hired a surveyor who determined the demarcation was further south, and since it cut right through Ritter's garage, so did Braun. The Ritter's own surveyor used maps and markers like railroad ties to prove the actual line is where it's always been. Surprise! Now the family is suing Braun, his surveyor, the guy who operated the demolition equipment, 
and the local TV station that had the audacity to find this story interesting. <laughs> they want more than $450,000 in damages for their 520-square-foot rental home valued at thirty-two grand. Wait, are we going to get sued for also thinking this is entertaining on our podcast? I don't know, that seems to be like a good return for losing half a garage. <laughs> Though he says the Ritters have been the loud, obnoxious neighbors for years, Braun admits that he may have gone too far. Maybe. All right, panel, let's make lemonade out of half a lemon. Lar Bricker, what would you do with half a garage? Oh, there's so many possibilities, but y'all know where I'm going with this. I would turn it into the office for my newly formed cat detective agency. <laughs> <laughs> and I would add some more cats out there as sort of assistants. Toy Ball, what about you? What would you do with half a garage? Just the usual shit. Lift weights and drink beers. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Kevin? What would you do with half a garage? Put in half a car. Oh, for God's sakes. Podcast studio, Kevin. Podcast studio. Upgraded. Not enough room. More You could put footage. a moped in Kevin, there. Kevin, we're in a fucking closet. There'd be a lot more room in that podcast so, studio. So if I'd made like a Don Knotts joke, would that have been too obscure? No, everyone knows who Don Knotts is. Who watched? What's the joke? Well, wasn't Jack Ritter in uh, Three's Company with uh, Don yes, Knotts? Yes, he was. Yes, Same. and Mr. Furley. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, we should probably end on that note. But before we do, Lara Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? <laughs> We're going to have a dog, but first I have to give a shout out. I know. First, a shout out, though, to our faithful listener, Barbara Rimkunis. Hey, Barbara. Barbara's cat, Dimitri Russian Blue Cat, passed away recently, and she got two cats last weekend. Replacement cats. Replacement cats. And everyone's like, where's your new cats? We want to see pictures. And they had been hiding. So Barbara drew a very nice picture. It was just like all black with eyes. And she's like, here's my new cats. Nice. Um, But that's not actually like the Yorkshire Ripper drawings. (laughs) It was pretty funny. Uh, But actually, I wanted to do this one last week. But obviously, we had our baby of the week last week. So I had to put this one on hold. Um, Danielle Brooke had this lovely, um, it was just the sweetest thing. Huxtable, her lapsa asso, had to get three teeth pulled. Lassa apso, Lara. That's racist, Lara. It's lassa apso. Oh, for crying out loud. Huxtable, our lassa apso. There you go. Had to get three teeth pulled. He oh. was really out of it when he got home. She put him on the bed and Winslow, their Tibetan terrier, who's also a COVID rescue, got up there and covered him in a blanket. I saw that. It's the nicest thing. So they rescued Winslow in May and he's aggressive, protective, and he's really sweet now. And there's pictures. It's adorable. I'm really happy about Danielle's dogs, even though I'm not a dog person. (laughs) And I'm so happy that she got those teeth pulled. I'll tell you, we used to have a dog who died. But she had a bunch of rotten teeth, remember? And she was just a bitch. And then we had her teeth pulled, and she was awesome afterwards. It turned out they were very painful. Technically, she was still a bitch. Yeah, that's true. All right, Laura Bricker, people want to send their animals to you to be nominated for Cat of the Week. But they don't have to be cats. They could be dogs. They could be emus. They could be iguanas. How can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And, of course, you can also submit your pets to our email address, crimewriterson at gmail.com or in our Facebook group. Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you to say, hey, Toby, what are you wearing and why do you look like that? How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you with their continued congratulations on how great you are at hosting this podcast, 
when I have diarrhea, how can they find you online? <laughs> I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. By the way, diarrhea is a medical problem. It's not disgusting. It happens to all of us. You can also follow the show Says on you. Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our truly amazing community. I love you all in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way, but that's not important. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you will get ready for this the crime writers on after show married with podcast toby balls deep dive book club podcast and laura bricker's leave it to bricker podcast our theme song was composed and performed by the fabulously talented ty gibbons our line editor is the very handsome and collegiate olivia burdett our executive producer is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement, which we created when we saw the laundry room in half. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Is it set up? Toby, can I ask you a real question? <laughs> yeah. Are you high right now? Get closer I, to the camera. Let me see I your face. Nice. <laughs> yeah, hundred. Listen, I have teenage boys. I know what that shit looks like. <laughs> I think that's yeah, said freaking cats have been crawling all over me because we were gone for several days. Do you have allergies? You know, we well, not normally, but I'm just like inundated with fucking cat hair. Oh. <laughs> Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.